One of the things that anytime you're creative and you're creating something that's over a period of time and you're trying to figure out a title, and sometimes that takes a while. And my working title, and I use that because it may get modified before the series is over, is living in the midst of God's grand story, the covenant. Today is part two, the fall. Last week we looked at in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the darkness, the water, the chaos, the light that came before the solar system. Now, the covenant is something that as we begin with Genesis 12, 15, and 17, is something that is that relationship that is so important. A professor, uh, O. Palmer Robertson, writes in The Christ of the Covenants, the total life involvement to the covenant relationship provides the framework for considering the connection between the Great Commission and the cultural mandate. I would also include the covenant relationship bonds, the greatest commandments, the love of God and the love of our neighbors. Now, I will probably tell a number of stories this fall that relate to 50 years ago, because 50 years ago is when I started transferred to Covenant College. And it was 50 years ago that Francis Schaeffer came and helped me begin to understand my life. Now, one of the things we didn't talk about then, but we realize now, is that my generation, I mean, you're looking at a guy who next month, we're 69, right? Celeste, I gotta have to remember, how old am I? We were the first generation to be raised with television. And I don't think any of us realized how that affected us, because we were just, that was just there. We didn't think about it. But see, we're not just the first generation to be raised with television, we're the first generation to be raised with television advertising. Now, advertising wants to motivate you to change, to buy something. It gives you ideas. And I remember, you know, the idea of being popular. Now, I was a kid who had what we referred to as acne, blackheads, you know, all kinds of things. And my parents took me to doctors. I got creams, I got um, dry ice treatments, I got injections. Because if you had clear skin, you were guaranteed to be popular. But then I had a second curse. I wore glasses. And everybody knew that guys who wear glasses don't get passes from glasses. <laughs> if you wore glasses, girls weren't going to like you. They used shame and guilt, but of course, shame and guilt was part of the way parents and teachers motivated children to change. Now, that shaming in relationship to guilt has been upped on the social media with memes and things like that. You just see how people create things to try to shame people who disagree with them. We know that sometimes when 
young people or anybody is shamed that it can drive them into hiding out, depression, and sometimes suicide. But what Francis Schaeffer back in the 60s told us was that when he counseled young people who came from Christian homes, people who had professions of faith, who were struggling with shame because they didn't realize that the blood of Christ covered both guilt and shame. Now, he also helped us understand the difference between the shame that comes from true guilt that we're going to look at today and the shame that we refer to as social shame, the shame that society would put on you. Now, I love my parents, but I grew up with a phrase that you ought to know better because you're a McFarland. Those you ought to knows. Or McFarlands don't do that. And I realized there were a lot of things that I was supposed to know that I didn't know. That So when I was a parent, I was going to try to do what I call preempt with my three daughters. Even if it meant I would embarrass them. But I think that we as a Christian community, both for adults and for children, because we know that shame is not something that is just for young people or for 20-year-olds. It's for all of us. You see these commercials for you know, people that, you know, these companies that want to help you figure out your retirement with the money that you have. And there are articles that are saying that retirement for a lot of people is never going to happen because they're always going to have to work to have the money. And that depresses people, that shames them, because retirement is one of those goals, one of those, at the end of the rainbow money pots, that people are supposed to access to allow them not to have to work. And so they struggle with their feelings, with those negative feelings. Now, one of the things about shame is it often comes from what we think of as misinformation, the false messages from society. Now, we're going to look at the origins of what I think of as disinformation and shame in this passage in Genesis 3. But it's something that I think that we need to be able to talk about. In my own life, when Schaefer raised that image, I don't think I fully began to understand how much it had affected me until almost five years later in the middle of my theological education at seminary. That these things take time to be formed and they take time to undo. But the sooner we can get people talking about this within the Christian community, within our families, to be able to say, hey, I think I got an issue. People at school, people at work, people on the commercials are saying these things about me, and I don't know how to deal with it. I don't feel like I'm a success. I'm because the successful person has replaced the popular person. One more illustration before we get into the text. Recently, a, 
And this is one of those things when you read these stories and you don't know how deep to go. A young pastor with a beautiful wife and three wonderful children committed suicide. I've been in presbyteries that have had to deal with the suicides of pastors. That is one of the reasons, I mean, think about this in terms of a relationship with your pastor. That you have a million dollar insurance policy in case they die for any reason. Because you don't know. Because people, particularly pastors, can be very good at hiding things. See, that's what happened to Adam and Eve, right? They hid. People hide from their congregations, pastors hide from their congregations. For a while, in the United States Army, among the officer corps, in other words, you have people who drive tanks, people who build bridges, people who do this, people who do that, and they're chaplains. The chaplains had the highest suicide rate of all officer corps in the United States Army. Because they couldn't deal. They couldn't figure out how to go public. They couldn't hear what I'm going to tell you about. Is they couldn't hear the voice of God saying, where are you? God knows that we're naked. We can't hide from him. But we have to be willing to say, I sinned. I need the shedding. But let's, let's look at this text. See, we live with the results of misplaced faith and disobedient choices on account of Adam and Eve. But God always covers us with his grace and the shed blood of the Lamb. When I look at verse 1, you have to have the end of chapter 2 in your head because it sets it up. You know how sometimes when you're reading you realize that, okay, that's the tag to drive us into the next chapter. When I was a child or young kid and, and preachers would preach on this, we all would go, tee-hee, you know, we would, you know, kids would laugh at, at verse 25 of chapter 2, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I mean, think about how primary schools, you know, they hear that and they wonder, well, how does that work? Naked and not ashamed. Because nakedness is always hidden. But it wasn't. And then the serpent. Now, the book of Revelation tells us some very interesting and important information in telling us who the serpent is. The great dragon who was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he has been thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. It gives us a simple definition of who he is, that he's the deceiver. Now, when you look at chapter 3, and you start off, now the serpent was more crafty. There's very little information about that. But what I want to propose to you is a viewpoint that is not original with me, 
But most people believe that the story of Job, whether it was written down or not yet, was known because it was, Job would have been a contemporary, we think, of Abraham. Okay? So that this drama that is revealed to us, that tells us a lot about Satan, would probably have been known through oral stories and history to these Israelite slaves because of Job. And so when you say the serpent was more crafty, of any, you know, but one of the things that's also important is to realize that God made the serpent, God made the devil. He is not outside of God's creation. That is one of the things that is different from a lot of religions because a lot of religions will have a parallel history of evil and good both starting back there. But what God tells us is that he created everything, even these angels that fell with the serpent, with Satan, with this serpent. And so he comes into the woman. And he questions the authority of what I refer to as the creative word. We have seen the word of God create the universe. And God says, here's everything you can have except for that tree. Now, since we're the children of Adam and Eve, we know that, of course, you know, if you tell a child you can have all that bubble gum but don't eat that one piece... That one piece is what's going to want, isn't it? That's not the way it always was, but in Adam and Eve, when the question of the authority of the creative word, and we need to realize that all sin begins with the questioning of the authority of the one who created us. The question of the alternate sources of authority, the idea of casting doubt. See, that's what the serpent did. He cast out. See, one of the things that Francis Schaeffer would tell us was that when he talks to young people who live with all the shame and depression, he would say the problem is that they're living in an area of doubt that the word of God, the clarity of his promises has not broken through to control their lives. They're allowing these other noises, these other voices Not necessarily to say it's wrong, but just to question things. Just to create the deceptions. Because remember that that the devil, Satan, is the deceiver of the whole world. Remember when he came down and tried to deceive Jesus three times? Three times Jesus responds with the word of God, then he goes out into the desert. He's a deceiver of the whole world. And mankind followed his lead. Now the passage that is most definitive about this is from Romans 5, beginning in verse 12, when it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted Where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though those sinning were not 
like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was going to come. Because remember, often there is that type of the first Adam and the second Adam. First Adam fails in rebelling against the word of God. The second Adam, Christ, is obedient to the point of death and sacrifice. That in Adam and in Eve, all of us, that is where our sin nature comes from that needs to be changed by the shed blood of Christ, by the Holy Spirit. You see, it's, it's out of that that there is this alienation in this very simple description. They know they're naked. They sew together fig leaves for a loincloth. And they try to hide from God. Because they hear God coming. Because God's been coming and they've been talking. God's been probably explaining, here's how the world works. Here's, you know. But they're hiding. Because they realized that they were naked. In other words, there was all of a sudden this alienation between a husband and wife because of sin. And now they're collectively trying to hide from God. Because we know from Romans 8 that all of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, for creation was subject to fertility, that indeed it groans waiting. So this alienation that is created by sin from each other, from God, and from creation. Instead of having a watered garden that basically is sustainable by itself and will feed him and his wife and his children, they are pushed out where there are weeds and dry ground and hard labor and sweat. But this aloneness that is created because of sin and because of shame, because the, you've got the guilt that you really have disobeyed God and you have the shame that you feel because you have disobeyed God causes you to be alienated, to hide. But yet it is God in his grace who doesn't just destroy everything. They died, they're dead, they're gone, they're buried, put back into the dust, let's start again. No. Where are you? That is a question that a lot of people need to hear. Where are you? And to hear that from the voice of God. To know that God in his grace from the very beginning has been reaching out to those who are made in his image. People he knows who are hiding because of their shame and because of their guilt. They're hiding. They're acting as if they can hide from God. You know, there are people who think about traditions. Have you ever wondered where hide and seek comes from? It's a game that evidently is universal across 
a lot of civilizations, a lot of families, a lot of communities, a lot of villages. Hide and seek. Now, we can't prove that its origins are in Genesis 3. But you can see a lot of parallels. Kids are hiding in boxes behind corners, all kinds of places, and somebody comes looking for them. Somebody comes to seek them. You see, that's one of the things that is so precious and powerful that we have a God who seeks rebellious people deserving of death. That he comes and he communicates because he's looking for them. There are a lot of people, and I saw some statistics that said, you know, in Japan, 9% of the population says they're lonely. In the UK, it's 22%. In the United States, it's 23%. That loneliness, hiding from other people, not wanting to interact with other people, is becoming, both in the UK and in the United States, what they call a public health crisis, because people who are lonely, who hide from other people, that affects their health because it affects their mental health. So we need to be a church that in God's place goes playing that evangelistic game of hide and seek. We need to go and seek out our neighbors who are hiding from God. Who feel ashamed. And see, even in our own churches, we need to be willing to talk to each other, whether it's in high school or retirement or in between, people who feel ashamed for whatever reason because of the voices of culture. And we need to talk to them. Now, in a very simple statement in Genesis 3, we see God in his grace address their shame in a way only perhaps he could do. <clears throat> he gives them animal skins. God sheds the first blood in his creation to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. Think about that. Think about how important that is, that God in his grace provides a way to cover their shame. Because that's going to be the shame that, for the rest of history, people are going to struggle with. Trying to hide from God. Trying to hide from each other. But, there's a cost. They're cast out of the garden. They're cast out of the intimacy that they had, out of the presence of God that they had. Now, having been deployed, sent by the military to the Middle East, there are several places that claim to be the garden. There is a place in Saudi Arabia that has this obelisk that 
is supposed to be the center of the Garden of Eden, which is where you can go when you go around three times, say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and you're divorced from your wife. Women can't go, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. But they claim that's where it was. But see, the point of being pushed out and being guarded so that it can't come back is that that long journey that we're going to see through the covenant of God restoring his presence in the life of people because of shed blood, because of the, ultimately the blood of Christ. But they're cast out. It's going to be hard to feed your family. It's going to be hard to do almost everything. Now, we know that the shed blood of Christ covers our guilt and our shame. See, I think too often preachers like me don't talk about guilt and shame. And so people don't hear that their shame is supposed to be pushed away. That you're not supposed to be ashamed. You're not supposed to listen to a culture. I mean, imagine what this is saying to people who were slaves and have been slaves for 400 years. God has re oriented them in terms of you're not a slave, you are made in the image of God. And I'm going to free you. So whether you're young or you're old, you need to hear the words of God. You need to let the words of God overpower all the advertising that we hear. You know, when Francis Schaeffer exposed me to the idea that we are, in our consumer culture, we're created to move forward by shame. Oh, I've got to have that car. I've got to have that house. The cynical idea of the trophy wife is one of the worst expressions but you see, one of the things that happens to pastors, remember I talked about pastors and suicide? There's a new kind of pastor, for better or for worse, and they exist, called the celebrity pastor. And there are books on how to be there. I mean, one, you have to have, se- not one, but several books on the New York Times bestseller list. Your church has to have over 2,000 people. You have to be a speaker at a minimum of four conferences a year. You have your own YouTube channel. And you have other material that for your church. Your church music program has their own programs and things. Because we bought into the lie that bigger is better. Louder is better. Popular is better. See, it's about the presence of God in our lives, whether that's Adam and Eve or whether it's two or three are gathered together in my name. One of the things we know about the persecuted church that we're aware of is sometimes the place where God is working the most powerful is the darkest. Against incredible odds, people are Christians and are becoming Christians. China can't figure out what to do. They destroy their buildings, they imprison their pastors. 
Christianity keeps growing. Because it's about wanting to be in the presence of the God who created you. I mean, if you think we have a shame culture, study China. Study Asia. There are a lot of cultures that have very powerful uses of shame that the gospel addresses. See, that's what we need to hear from this and remind ourselves of when he gave them the coverings of animal skins after he shed the blood was to cover their shame as well as to pay for their guilt. So we take our guilt to the cross. We take our guilt to the cross because we need to hear the voice of Scripture that you are forgiven because of the shed blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven. And any kind of shame, true shame, false shame, shame from the culture, we know that Christ took on our shame. And I need to ask my question when I think about shame issues are, whose voice am I listening to? Am I listening to the voice of God? Am I listening to the voice of Jesus? Am I listening and reading the word of God that says that my shame is covered and that is not my identity? Now, as someone who continues to work through those issues, it's a journey. It's not something that you arrive at a place, you get to milestones and you keep going. Because you keep living. And the voices in the back of your head from long ago come forward. But yet we need to let the voices of grace, those voices of God, that in this picture remember that God has provided you a covering in Christ. So you don't have to be guilty or ashamed. But more important is that God has reached out and said, where are you? He's come looking for you. Is this not the shepherd who went looking for the one sheep while the 99 were at home? In the very part of the earliest of scriptures, God is reaching out. And you have to say, here am I. Remember just as I am? No, please. But because of the Lamb of God, I come, I come. See, we need to be a community that goes out and represents God and says, where are you? But we need to be a community that when people say, I feel ashamed and I'm hiding, that we can point to the shed blood of Christ, we can point to the word of God and say, your shame is taken away. That's not who you are. It's a powerful story. Yes, we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. We live in a world where people are cruel to each other. And our electronic age has allowed us to be crueler to more people. (laughs) 
You know, as we look and we understand about Facebook and they say it makes people lonely, it makes people jealous. We need to hear the voice of God. We need to hear the one who comes and says, where are you? When you're lonely, when you feel isolated, when you feel unloved. One last high school story. I went to the smallest high school in Los Angeles. We only had 623 kids in our class. I had friends in my youth group that had 5,000 kids in a class. In other words, there were 15,000 students in the high school. <coughs> and we had these multiple, it was a big horseshoe with building each department. Like history had its own, science had its own, math had its own, English had its own, the arts, the music, all of them, they had their own. But all of them were lined with lockers. And they were half lockers. In other words, you you know you didn't have a full locker, you had a half a locker to put yourself. So who is the girl next to Fred's locker? She is none other than Miss Team Chatsworth, the local beauty queen. And we had a lot of conversations. And finally, I got up the nerve to ask her on a date. And she said the one thing that just destroys voice. Fred, I couldn't go out with you because you're more like a brother. I can tell you anything. And as a senior in high school, it was like, well, that's how the world works. You can share secrets. But if you're going to go out on a date in public, you're going to have a public image. So the kids are ceiling with acne and glasses. But we continued to talk. And I've always thought that God used those because she wasn't the first and she wasn't the last that said that to me. that for some reason people trusted me to tell me some of their most troubling concerns as teenagers that that prepared me to be a pastor that I could add something of value to somebody's life just by listening So I think when you go out and you think about your neighbors and your families and, you know, where can it go, part of it is you're just going to listen. See, Adam and Eve didn't listen, did they? We need to listen to our neighbors. But more powerfully, we need to listen to God to know who we are and not to allow the commercials, the society, the chatter, the internet, to shame us. To make us feel bad about who we are. The turning point was when God, when I was in seminary, 
got me to see that Christ died for Fred. That's what made me valuable. I was made in his image, but Christ died for Fred. So when you understand that Christ died for you, all the shame, all the guilt, but all the shame of the world is gone. Now, yes, we're still outside the garden, dealing with weeds, dealing with hard work. But we know because of what's said here about the seed of the woman. And that is where the precious promises are that will be unfolded in the rest of this sermon series, unfolded in the rest of creation. When we think about creation, fall, redemption, that that woman who ate the apple is the one who's going to bring the seed that will bring victory. How grace and God's grace turns Sadness, disappointment, rebellion into his redemption and reconciliation. Now, Celeste and I are getting ready to, we're going to go on, we're going to take a little vacation. We're going to go to Presbytery and then we're going to take the ferry and go up to Shetland and be there for a while. And we'll be back the following week. Because when I was thinking about the next three sermons, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17, and figuring out how do I preach those passages to you because they are some of the biggest passages in my life in terms of understanding God's redemption, understanding God's love, understanding his purposes, that God has committed himself to us in a covenant sealed with blood. As we think about who we are as a church as we think about sharing that vision, part of that is going to be the covenant because it is the overarching thing of creation, fall, redemption. I introduced, and I don't know, see, here's where I need to have more conversations. When I talk about the cultural mandate and the Great Commission, you know, does that connect? Does that communicate? We talk about that we live with the greatest commandments to love God and to love our neighbor and how all that fits together in the covenant story. That's what we're going to unfold. That's what we're going to look at. And I'll be honest with you as, you know, um, I've read about certain writers' process. They, they go along, they have this big story arc, but they get to certain places and the characters change the sequence. I can't promise you that we're not going to get to, say, Genesis 15, and all of a sudden Fred's going to say, can't do it. It's going to take two sermons. This is not a pre-programmed script. This is a living relationship with you and with God. In thinking about how God has committed himself to us, how he has continued to be the God who says, where are you? 